The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Heavenly Father, we feel an amazing awe at your pleasure with sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And you've called us to be your own. We praise you for such mercy, and we ask that this hour would not be wasted through deafness. May we have ears to hear, and may we be awakened as you speak to us through your book, awakened to be more than we were when we entered. Greater lovers of others, more humble, more awed by the mercy we've been given and empowered to be merciful. Thank you for the truth of your word, that you are a God who speaks, and then, in light of new covenant grace, enables us to hear. I ask that you would meet us now. For the glory of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So we are in a three-week study of the Minor Prophets. Twelve brothers that God put together their messages together into a single book in Jesus' Bible. So we're approaching it thematically. We're going to look at two areas this week. God's covenant commitment as it manifests itself in this book of the Twelve and the implications of that covenant commitment for those who encounter this God of relationship. So here it is. And I'm going to open up my Bible to the book of Exodus to start us off. The main portion is on the screen, but I'm going to put it into context. The golden calf episode has happened. God's glory is appearing in the mountain, and yet Israel turns their eyes away from the glory and they sin. In Exodus 20.20, God had said, I have come in this way with power and with fire in order to test you that you might fear me so that you will not sin. To test you that you might fear me so that you will not sin. So what that means is if we're struggling with sin, we're not fearing God enough. Because where fear of God abounds, obedience overflows. Or when we have a proper theology, an encounter with God, worship will be ignited automatically. That's what Pastor Jason said this morning. Same type of thing. The glory of God is above, and Israel is sinning below. Moses comes down, and God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. Moses pleads with God, and God pardons. A temporary, immediate pardon. But then he says, you're going to the land, I'm not going to go with you. I'll send my angel, but I won't let my presence go with you. And in that moment, after Ezekiel 33, 6, Exodus 33, 16, when, Moses, when God uh, declares, I'm not going with you, and Moses says, but God, how will anyone know that we are distinct? How will any nation see any change if you don't go with us? Because you are the one that makes us different. Then Moses pauses and he says, God, show me your glory. And what we're told is the name of God passed before Moses. And this is what he heard. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. 
So God descended in a cloud, stood with Moses there, and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. God has declared, I'm not going to go with you, because if I do go with you, a holy God meeting a stubborn people, his zeal for holiness, his passion against sin will incinerate them. And Moses hears this, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving trespasses, iniquity and sin. And Moses says, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Sovereign One, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, a stubborn people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance." Israel has no hope if this God of mercy doesn't go with them. And Moses recognizes that. You can't stay away. How will your mission be fulfilled in the earth? You've got to be near us. We need to be near you because you are a God who forgives sinners like us. This covenantal testimony, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, colors the 12 minor prophets. And I want to look and see how this very passage is echoed in the words of the prophets. There's a tension in this text. I don't know if you've felt it. He's a God, merciful and gracious, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So on the one hand, he's a God who will forgive sin, and yet he won't let any guilty one get off. I've talked with some who have said the sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ was not necessary for God to forgive sin. He's God. He can bestow mercy at will. This text says no. He cannot clear the guilty. Every sinner will be published, punished, not published, that too, it'll all come out in the end. Every sinner will be punished. Or the just wrath of God will fall on the substitute. But Exodus 34 is before Leviticus even comes into our word. And so there's a tension in this text, a tension that's raised. A God who is always faithful, not only to bless, but also to curse. And believe me, we want to be on the side of blessing, on the side of mercy, but that mercy is costly. Because he will by no means clear the guilty. So how does it play itself out? Yahweh's covenant commitment. We're going to look at a number of texts throughout the Minor Prophets, but just a reflector on last week. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful. Rahum. In Hosea chapter 1... God had named one of Hosea's children 
No mercy. Lo ruchamah. No mercy. But then we read this. I will have mercy. I, because of who I am, it's just bound up in my system. It overflows from me. Mercy. I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by Yahweh their God. I, Yahweh, will save them by Yahweh. That's very strange. God's talking in first person and then he throws himself into, second per, into uh, third person. I, Yahweh, will save them by Yahweh their God. What do I think is happening? I think Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. When we read that part in Exodus 34, a God merciful and gracious, it's unpacking the character of God. We just saw his name two times. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. So when it says, I will bestow mercy on them and save them by my character, it will just overflow from me. Mercy. I will not save them by bow or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen, so that they recognize it is me and me alone. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Just a small hint, but I think it's a real one, that God's covenantal commitment is on the minds of these prophets. Something they don't want to let go of. A God who is merciful and gracious, who forgives who is slow to anger. In the Old Testament, there isn't an explicit word for patience. A God slow to anger. That's an interesting but legitimate rendering, but very literally what it says is God is long-nosed. Isn't that weird? He's long-nosed, meaning that when the fury rises, it takes a long time until the sparks fly. That's our God. Merciful and gracious. Slow to ignite His judgment. We need that kind of a God. Yahweh's bent toward mercy grounds Joel's call to repentance. All of Judah caught up in sin. God sends a locust plague in. And they don't recognize the significance of it. This is a picture, God says. The little bit of judgment that you've experienced. None of your crops producing. The locusts eating everything away. This is just a small picture of the ultimate judgment that is coming. Will you repent Will you see the sign and repent? Will you, in the context of being humbled, allow your heart to rise up and call out for help? Because God opposes proud people. You're not dead yet. You're still breathing. Will you turn to me? Here's Joel. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Oh, you can rip your clothes and put ashes in your hair, but if your heart hasn't changed, nothing matters. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Because I know Him. Because I've encountered the living God. And He is 
Exodus 34, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. He's willing to turn back. Jeremiah 18, if there's any people that I have declared judgment against at any time who turns back to me and returns and humbles themselves, then I will think differently about the judgment that I had declared. That is the reality. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for Yahweh your God. Do not presume on grace, but the prophet is calling people to repent because it's the only means by which we can gain it. The dam of divine mercy and love is opened wide in the context of repentance. This morning as I'm sitting in the service, God just graciously humbled my heart and helped me receive His love. He just helped me receive His love. And in that context, the possibility of loving others is birthed. Just trying to saturate my life in the context of the Gospel, all that God has won for me in Jesus. He really does love us. His favor is real because the cross is real. But we enjoy that that water flow of mercy only in the context of broken hearts that hate sin, that grieve over how we talk to our spouse, that grieve over the way that we handled a matter in an appropriate way. We grieve over it. And in the context of grieving, we don't exalt ourselves. We, we move ourselves underneath the cross and we receive what has been secured for us. Yahweh's bent toward mercy is what motivated jo- Jonah's disobedience. You remember that? He arrives in Nineveh, 30 days, and the Ninevites repent. Judgment's coming. The Ninevites repent, and Jonah stomps away, and he says, God, I knew you were like this. Here's what he says. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I, yet, when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why did I hop on a boat when you told me to go to Nineveh? Because I knew that you were a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I know that's your character. And I don't like it. I don't want others to experience this. I want them to get wrath. That's what I want them to have. They are too ugly. They're too mean. They've hurt me or my family too much. I don't want them to get mercy. That was Jonah. Because he knew the character of God, it moved him to run from God. The very prophet of Yahweh didn't like the character of Yahweh. And that's a scary place to be. We'll come back to that at the end. We saw this in Joel. We see it again here in Jonah. 
I know that you're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. So he takes the end of the verse, he just shortens it up, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He just piles it together and he just says, you're one who relents from disaster. That's what judgment is called. It's disaster. That's where sin leads, to disaster. Trying to remember which prophet it is. Almost there. Jeremiah. It's in Jeremiah chapter 7. The people are so proud. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They think because the temple is there, they're safe and they can live how they want. And God says to them, don't you know, you're not just rejecting me, you're hurting yourselves. Sin hurts us because it results in disaster. Rebellion in your soul. It's not just rebellion toward God, it's, it's unfleshed by how we treat His image bearers. How we respond to our kids and how we steward the time and the money that we oversee in our jobs. God controls it all and we're living as His stewards in this world and all of it matters. Sin will result in disaster. Nahum. Nahum includes one of the... It's it's the clearest, most descriptive war oracles in all the Bible. And it's directed toward one people, the Ninevites. One generation after Jonah comes Nahum. And Nahum, his entire book, is targeted toward the Assyrian capital. And he's declaring... To them, God's judgment is going to fall. Specifically, what's at stake is this. Mercy will not come to the unrepentant. Instead, it unpacks the nature of the disaster. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. That is true. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty, says Nahum. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. The Lord is good. He is good, but he is a lion, untamed lion. He is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. If you are on his side, you are safe. But know this, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. The failure to repent results in divine damnation. And it's as true today as it was then. Sin is scary. We should run from it. Shall we continue to sin that grace may increase? By no means. By no means. Not only lack of repentance, but complacency. Apathy. We do our acts in secret... Acting as though God doesn't see. He doesn't know. What so often happens when God doesn't just take our lives, extended slow to angerness, rather than moving us to mercy, it actually too often results in complacency, apathy, and acting like God really won't judge. 
Here's Amos. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who are actually saying, disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. We're okay. And it will come. Micah 3, Jerusalem's heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and they say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come to us. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Meaning that it's going to be dark, not light. The day of the Lord is darkness. To sinners, but no one will be able to hide because God will have the lamp and he will find everyone. He'll search Jerusalem with lamps. I'll punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They're just forgetting the promises of God. They're not seeing God as trustworthy, both to bless and to curse. And we need to live in light of the future. We need to bank our hope on the promises of God. And what we hope for tomorrow will change who we are today. That's the logic of the gospel. In light of the pardon that we have secured in Jesus, power is given. And how has that power come to us? One of the ways it comes to us is through precious, blood-bought promises. He has given us His precious and very great promises so that through them we may partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. 1 Peter 1.4 He's given us His promises so that we can look more like God and less like the world. Get disentangled from the desires of the world through the promises of God. If it's lust, we say the pure in heart will see God. How much do you want to see God? Let that motivate you into purity. If it's bitterness, we say, no, I will not hold this grudge against this person. Why? Because we trust the promises of God. Respond good rather than to e- respond good for evil. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We trust that God's justice is better than ours, and we leave that justice to Him. If we're anxious, we say no to anxiety and yes to prayer and thanksgiving because as we pray and as we remember all that God has done for us, the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It's a promise. And what we hope for tomorrow can make us a different person today. In that moment of decision, am I going to sin or am I not going to sin? We step back and we remember the promises of God that are yes and amen in Jesus for all who are in Christ. You have wearied the Lord with the words, with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? God hasn't shown up yet. I've been sinning this sin in secret for years, and He hasn't found me out. Where's the God of justice? You've wearied the Lord with your words, acting as though those who do evil will receive good, or that evil is okay. But here's our hope.
Um, it seems to imply that there are those verses. Of course, we all heard It's speaking to, in Malachi and in Zephaniah, speaking to Judah as a corporate entity, as a, as a community in relationship with God. What I wouldn't want, in, your question is, is this not only individual, but is it dealing with a group? And it, at one level it is. But what we have to be careful of is, is identifying the right group. And what I mean by that is that here God is, he has a covenant with Judah, an old Mosaic covenant. He also has a covenant with all the world, but he doesn't have a covenant with the United States. Or with any other specific nation. So, the, he, he has a covenant with the world in Adam, in Noah, the rainbow in the sky, all the world having a responsibility before God to live rightly, to submit to him. And then Israel is a picture of the whole world, called to be what Adam was supposed to be. God has a, a special relationship with them. And so, and he has a special relationship with the church. And so... You have um, individuals make up a community. And every individual has to be surrendered to God. And the glory of the new covenant is that this text right here is not only a truth, but it's, it's, it's made to happen for the new covenant people. Just let me read this and then I'll... I'll finish my response. Micah, me, ka, ya. Me is the question, who, in Hebrew. Ka is the preposition, like. And ya is short for Yahweh. Micah's name is, who is like Yahweh. And then his book ends this way. Who is a God like you? Who? Who is a God like you? who pardons iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. That is our God and this is our hope. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So as a as a group called the church in the new covenant, we are resting with a reality that this has been accomplished for us. We don't move ahead in our pursuit of conquering sin in order to secure pardon. No, the only sins we can conquer, lust, bitterness, anger, resentment, apathy, The only sins that we can conquer are sins that have already been pardoned. Because we need blood-bought power in order to overcome who we are apart from Jesus. We rest on this hope that the prophets looked forward to. How? How can God, who will not clear the guilty, be gracious and compassionate and pardon iniquity, transgression, and sin? Because he entered into the world as an unblemished sacrifice. 
in order to show that when he went to the cross, it was not because of his sin, but for ours. And he took our chastisement upon himself so that we could be healed. It's bound up in the character of God, the tension that demanded the cross, a God who is both gracious and merciful and who will not clear the guilty. And it's all brought together. God's character is brought together in focus at the cross. And it clarifies how this can be possible for all. We encounter this amazing God, and that's not enough. Because as we encounter this God, it's supposed to change us from within. That's the second part, reflecting the character of God. And it shows up in many different ways. Number one, reflecting God's worth by honoring Him. So is God really the greatest treasure? Is He the one that we live for? Do we prize Him more than prestige? Do we prize Him more than stuff? One of the families that was in that we were in small group with for five years here at Bethlehem had their house burned down two times. That will help you let go of your tie on stuff. God can just take it away. He can do that in an instant, justly, because it's all a gift. Experiencing sickness in our body What is of greatest worth to us? The loss of loved ones. It aches in our soul. Will it cause us to stop trusting in God because He's that big? When He takes the one that we love away. The whole book of Job is designed to tell us, fear God simply because of who He is, not because of what He gives or takes away. And the message of Job answers that question for Satan, because he's the one who says to God, does Job fear God for nothing? Take everything away and he'll curse you to your face. And in order to prove to Satan that God's worth is enough, God lets Satan take it all away from Job, everything but his breath. And Job says, Shall we receive only good from God and not also harm? Blessed be the name of the Lord. The worth of God. Reflecting God's worth by honoring Him. What, is, what kinds of things am I talking about? Number one, keeping God foremost in our affections. We love our God too little if we love anything other than God, not for God's sake. Augustine said that. We love our God too little if we love anything other than God. Wife, football, hot fudge Sunday, job, children. We love our God too little if we love anything other than God, not for God's sake. That is, without recognizing that not only is this from Him, but it's designed to produce worship in our soul. Gratitude is worship. Dependence and prayer is worship. Well, what I would say is this group forgetfulness was made up of individuals who forgot. 
And none of those individuals would gain benefit eternally from anything that happened to the group if they as individuals did not repent and rend their hearts and plead for mercy. It couldn't just be a corporate plea. It had to be individual plea. No child could expect, expect lasting hope by walking and holding their parents' hand. And even in the Old Testament, they're dealing with group, with, with the whole group, the entire covenant community, but every individual bore the responsibility before their God, and every individual could only have eternal hope. When Jesus is facing Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would have already risen up with, with swords. So the kingdom of God that we see in Acts, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, that expansion is not political at all. The church is bigger than any political sphere. It, it, it's, the boundary waters don't distinguish the Canadian church from an, a Minnesotan church in any way. And so God is still in the business. He's the, he alone is the one who puts presidents or kings on the throne. But that does not have direct relationship to the kingdom of God. Vladimir Putin's massive influence at least on the Olympics, saying it's side-by-side side now on a global scale with President Obama's, that influence says nothing about his relationship with the Lord. And it can pass in an instant. So, what I'm seeing in the Minor Prophets is, yes, a call for the community, will they listen to this prophet? But if one person repents they will enjoy eternal mercy, even if they experience the temporal judgment of God, as the majority of them do. But the only hope is for them as an individual to put their hope in the promise of the ultimate deliverer who would come, that God's kingdom would be established. And when it does, it has nothing to do with Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, in seeing a distinguishing marker. The Old Covenant was about distinguishing that. Circumcision separated Jew from Gentile, separated male from female, and even separated, separated within the Gentile world, slave from free man. The slave became part of the organic community and was circumcised, whereas the free man entered in and didn't get circumcised. The New Covenant separates, just sees the dissolution of all those distinctiveness. And the Old Covenant in the way that it calls for heart change, is anticipating that transformation. So God says, I'll punish her for her feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them, adorned herself with ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me. There was something greater moving her. It was actually a, a, a separating herself from a delight in God by delighting in other things. We can delight in other things other than God. That's why I think the way that Augustine worded it, we love our God too little if we love anything other than God. He didn't stop there. Because we're called to love our spouse. We're even called to delight in the gifts of God, be they fruit, food, drink, sex, 
The world, creation, sunset, sunrise, delight in it. Allow it to elevate to the point of worship. Delight in the things of this world as a means of moving us one octave up to the point of praise. But if you love anything in this world and don't allow it to ratchet up that one step higher, then we've failed in what God's called us to do. Our affections are misplaced. We do. Doing it perfectly. But I would suggest we do it really. You can have real love and yet it still be imperfect, but it still be real. And what Jesus came to do was actually empower what he commands. The old covenant is just commands without empowerment. The new covenant, what's different is that the same call to love God with all, we hear it, but now we're ignited to do it imperfectly now. But we're truly doing it. What we're doing in this place and humbling ourselves before our God is loving him. It's true affection, transform new desires of the soul that were impossible apart from a new heart and the indwelling of the Spirit. So I would want to distinguish real affection, real love from perfect love. We won't love God, know God perfectly until the future, but we can know God truly and love Him really, even now. And everything hinges on it. What does Paul say? Romans 8, 28, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. So we can't say Christians don't love God because we're counting on the fact that He's working good for us. And He only works good for those who love Him. But it's an imperfect love. And it's because it's an imperfect love that we always, like you said, are grounded in Christ. We're always looking back to Him. And as we look back to Him, our hearts are filled with hope in light of all the promises that are already yes because of what He has done. Uh, It would be Romans 13 would be the nearest where Paul is instructing. He's calling the church, but um, I am quite certain that Nero or whoever would have been the Roman ruler at that time would have read Romans. With the rise of Christianity... Paul writes Romans in a way that knows he knows that the Caesar is going to hear what he writes about in Romans 13 when he says all authority that exists is established by God. And then he says, Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, how's it worded? The government does not hold the sword for nothing. He has been endowed to do good. That's what the authority of the world has. So when the authority of the earth does not do good, every nation underneath its king is not working good. When the government is working ill, it is on a trajectory of destruction that God will bring down. And goodness... Goodness is uh, there defined, it's difficult to define what it is that's good that they're supposed to be doing. What does the good look like? What morality can be legalized? But it has something to do with this book. 
and it has something to do with the character of God, at his very essence, a God of justice and a God of mercy. And that somehow our governments are supposed to be emulating that. And when they don't, they are writing their own death warrant and the destruction of the nation. Well, well, it is. But I would also say that as a people, we do vote our leaders who will lead us. But, but, even, but even a king, a king is a servant of the people. He is a called by God underneath, I'm thinking Deuteronomy 17, Israel's king was a servant of the people, but he was still the leader. And we have leaders. But we're not Israel. No. I think you're bridging a gap back to the politics discussion, which I missed. But that we had in here two weeks ago, last week when I was not here. Um, A few points of note. One, sin is not only deserving of judgment, sin is judgment. Romans 1 says God gave them over to their wickedness. That means their sin produced more sin and it was God's judgment on them. Number two, it's very difficult to discern For us to discern what is what God is doing. A tornado hits a Lutheran church downtown, we might automatically think, judgment of God. But when it hits a Christian college campus in Kentucky and wipes, wipes out three-fourths of the school, how, on what basis can we say one is judgment and one's not judgment? It's very difficult for us to have eyes to see and discern verbally what is God doing right now. But this we do know. He's on the throne. Not one tornado operates apart from him. He hates sin and Jesus is the only answer. He alone raises up kingdoms and he alone puts them down. And the church has a responsibility to impact culture in godly ways. I need to wrap this up. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us not be like Jonah who experience your mercy in the belly of a fish and celebrate it. And yet, are angry that you would give such mercy to others. I pray that we would be mindful of the neediness around us. Help me to teach in a way that is answering the pressing needs around us and not leaving it abstract. Help us See sin overcome in our own lives by your mercy. Help us celebrate that pardon is secure and that you are 100% for us in Christ. Work mightily in and through us, helping us display the character of God. Through Jesus I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. 
Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.